Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It is April 12th, 2018, and I am joined by Jonathan Last and Michael Warren of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here, Charlie. I want you, I want you to restore my faith in humanity. Let me tell you about my last 18 hours on Twitter. Um, I went on a variety of shows, and you know I've been very critical of, of Paul Ryan and his relationship with Donald Trump, but I try to make the point that Paul Ryan is a fundamentally decent and honorable guy. And of course, this unleashes a torrent of bleep um, on Twitter. People saying, well, no, you can't be. If you support these tax policies, if you support the repeal of Obamacare, you must by definition be an indecent, horrible human being who wants to eat babies. And it was one of those moments you step back and you go, okay, you know, one of the toxic things about our politics is this this unwillingness and this inability to acknowledge that you might disagree with someone on an issue, but that they're a fundamentally decent human being. And it is really remarkable to me uh, how many people have really internalized that attitude that uh, that if, in fact, uh, you are across the political divide, it's not just because you're wrong on your economics. You're just a you're just a bad person. You're just a bad person. Yeah. Jonathan asked. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the one hand, truth is an affirmative defense and most people are just terrible. People are garbage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, this I this this is all. It all gets back to. Did, did either of you guys read the Bill Bishop book, uh, the the Big Sort, which oh, is yeah. I think is one of the most important books the last twenty years. Um, totally agree. We are sorting ourselves out geographically. We have been sorting ourselves out sociologically and economically. I mean, we used to have like doctors marrying their secretaries, and uh, now you only have doctors marrying other doctors. You know, uh, where you- hey, sometimes, sometimes lawyers. Or sometimes lawyers, uh, where you used to live in reasonably politically heterogeneous cultures, uh, this is now much less true. We, we, the statistic, I believe, is that in 1968, uh, of all the, the, if you look at the presidential election returns on a county by county level, um, wait, there wasn't a presidential election in 1968, was yeah, there? there? Yeah, there was. Sure. Was yeah, it was 1968? Yeah. Uh, I, w- I, w- I was there. The returns were uh, incredibly evenly split. There were very few counties relatively. I think it was like 30% of the counties in America went for one side or the other by more than 20 points. These are called landslide counties. And by the late 1990s and early 2000s, by in fact, by the best example, of course, is that the essentially tied election of 2000. So you have an election which is tied at the national level. But by that point, almost 75 percent of the counties in America went in a landslide for one side or the other. And what this was indicative of was people sorting themselves out politically. Now, they didn't mean to. I mean, people aren't moving from one county to another because they think, oh, I want to only be around Republicans or Democrats. It's all about lifestyle. And the problem is that our lifestyles have gotten wrapped up in our politics and vice versa. And so all this is very bad. And when you stop intermarrying with people from the other side and stop having neighbors with people from the other side, uh, it becomes very, very easy to just assume that everybody on the other side is is evil and bad. And this is why I, I literally— and, and, you, and you go on steroids with, with social media. Yeah, and, and when you get online. This is an important point because then you're no longer dealing with actual human beings with all of their foibles and you, know, you, you don't actually have to confront them. 
um, and talk through your your differences. So it's so literally like driving. Like, look, the way people behave when they are driving is not the way mm-hmm. they behave in real life. When you are in a grocery store and somebody cuts you off, you do not shout at them and flip them off. You just sort of, you know, they say, excuse me, and you say, hey, no problem. And then you chit chat about the weather or something like that, because that is real life. And you have to interact with another human being. Being in an, in an automobile uh, makes you anonymous and renders these contacts very, very fleeting and imposes no social consequences, even, you know, fleeting awkwardness on somebody behaving badly. And that is what the Internet does, too. I, I consider myself totally blessed that almost everybody I love in the world, friends and family, is a liberal Democrat. And so I, I, and I mean this sincerely, like I, I almost never have the temptation to think of the people on the other side as being you evil. You are an outlier because, then, aren't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I am. And, but I, I really truly view it as a blessing and I, I wish everybody had the same, the same thing in their lives. Well, Charlie, and, and to address sort of the more specific example that, that you raised about Paul Ryan, I think um, there's something interesting going on with the kind of animosity that Ryan uh, uh, seems to generate, and, uh, uh, that, which is unique. I mean, uh, yes, the, the people have a certain have an obvious animosity from the left uh, toward Donald Trump, um, but the the Ryan examples always interested me because you know you go back to when he was um, you know when he was budget chairman and they were um, sort of uh, had the ads depicting Ryan pu- pushing Granny off a cliff and you know L- the things that he was doing yes. literally yeah pushing him off pushing Granny off a cliff. Um, it, uh, sort of why why is this why is Ryan who's sort of uh, conservative in his politics but moderate in sort of the way that he approaches things he, he's egghead he's he's the kind of person and and, and actually that's that's exactly it uh, I think you sort of have liberals have this idea that uh, if you are uh, moderate in your in your tone if you are sort of technocratic uh, if you're kind of a nerd about policy um, then naturally you must be a liberal and so if you are this kind of person who's appealing to, um, say, an up, upper middle class, uh, well-educated person, um, and you're espousing these conservative ideas, uh, you know that you read Ayn Rand and liked it back in college, which could apply to just about you know uh, every young Everybody. man of a certain <laughs> age, um, then then you must be disingenuous that you the, the the fact that you have adopted conservative policies and and politics means you're getting paid by the Koch brothers okay you or, know this is a really good yeah. point because you know I in the course of my my long and varied life um one of the things that I noticed is when people began to realize that I was no longer a liberal I was a conservative there was the assumption that well you know two assumptions number one you can't really believe these things you must be selling out and, and, and number two, um, you'd become a bad person. You just hadn't changed your mind about school choice. You just become a bad person. But this is, this is what's frustrating about the, you know, the whole issue of, of Paul Ryan, because my point on Paul Ryan is that, that it is his fundamental uh, decency and, and his, his understanding, his intelligence that makes his bowing of the knee to Trumpism so disappointing. Um, you know, in, in a way that the, you know, the MAGA Kool-Aid drinkers, you know, whatever, uh, I don't expect much of them, but, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. Okay, let's talk about the news of the day. A little bit more on this Ryan thing. He says, there's a piece up on the Weekly Standard that I thought absolutely nailed it by Chris Deaton, that one of the fallouts from Paul Ryan's uh, departure is entitlement reform is absolutely and completely dead. My My only caveat would be, it's probably never actually been alive, but 
definitively this 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 moment uh, when there was at least the glimmer of possibility that uh, the Republican Party would get serious about entitlement reform. Um, that's that's gone. It was it was probably killed when when Trump was elected, but it's definitely dead now, Michael. Yeah, you and I actually, interestingly, Charlie, talked about this, I think, earlier mm-hmm. this week before we knew that Paul Ryan was yeah, uh, was leaving. And um, it, it, I've been thinking about it more since he's since he's leaving, since Chris's piece went up and uh, excellent piece. You should read it. Uh, it, it, which is that changes like this, reforms like this, or, or sort of political uh, uh, political changes or political action that is difficult, is 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 difficult and, and requires a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of times requires leadership, leadership from uh, uh, from somebody. And Paul Ryan was that leader. And you can say that he, um, you know, he screwed up this particular aspect of it or he fell away from it or sort of his embrace of Trump, um, uh, you know, bought him uh, really nothing on the on the issue that he really cares about. Um, uh, but I think it just sort of underscores um, the importance of individuals um, and and to sort of make, to convince people. And, and also, you know, we, we lament in the Trump era the sort of uh, where is conservatism, where it's fiscal conservatism, where is uh, social conservatism and all these things. Well, you know, people are sort of lazy and I don't mean that as a pejorative people have their own lives they sort of um, they, they, the the most times that they sort of interact with politics is sort of how it affects them directly in the a- actual exact moment and that there's any sort of pain or any sort of work to be in, uh, to be done um, they sort of shy away from that or they take the, the easy way out and I can sort of understand that and, and sort of what political leadership, ought to do, and I think what Paul Ryan at his best sort of exemplified was an ability to say, actually, you know, uh, I'm going to do the work to convince people that this is important. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say that, you know, freedom is only one generation away from extinction or whatever, however he put it, liberty, um, that 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 big changes like this need sort of consistent and and hard work and and, and it can fade away not even in a generation in sort of uh, just a couple of political cycles um, and and I don't I don't necessarily think that that's ne- that's necessarily depressing um, it just is a it's a sort of yeah, call to action right. and I'm just sort of wondering is there anybody who actually wants to take up that mantle I don't see anybody in this particular instance of taking up the Ryan mantle. You know, if if I could just add this, the the part that Chris Deaton makes, the key point that he makes, I think, is the time, the timeline here. Uh, Three days ago, the CBO released just sort of a study of what the uh, what the projections look like for the trust funds that fund Social Security and Medicare, and the Medicare trust fund will be totally exhausted by the year twenty twenty six which is right around the corner. So you can't reform entitlements with a Democratic president, we think, right? Uh, You need to have a Republican president invested in it. And the next time we have a chance of having a Republican president whose name is not Trump is 2024. So even if you were to elect whoever the, think of the most, the, the, the ghost of Phil Graham as president in 2024, he will have two years to save the uh, Medicare trust fund. Um, I mean, the math on this gets very grim very quickly. Yeah, and of course, we we just had the Republican Congress uh, add to the deficit, which I, I don't want to dwell on because that actually depresses me too much. Uh, Michael, you you had an interesting scoop over the last uh, uh, twenty four hours about uh, more departures from the National Security Council, and uh, 
you're 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 hearing that the morale in the National Security Council is is really low. Tell me what you mean by that. I mean, why should we think of this as anything different than new guy coming in with a broom, bringing in his old his own people, getting rid of the old guys? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, it seems to be in the way that John Bolton, the new guy, is is sort of going about this, that um, there was this idea when H.R. McMaster uh, was uh, announced he was resigning or was fired or whatever, he put it and Bolton was coming in, that um, that uh, there was going to be somewhat of a grace period or a sort of a period of transition um, for for the staff, the political appointees at the NSC, and that um, John Kelly in particular was sort of going to uh, make sure that a, a, a Soviet-style purge, um, that's my term, um, wasn't going to happen. And that's not happening. Cle- clearly, Bolton is going through. He's um, uh, purging or forcing the re- resignations, not just of NSC staff, uh, which is sort of a, a contained 100-person staff, Michael Anton, the spokesman, Nadia Shadlow, who's really just in the last couple of months rose to the, the level of of, uh, of deputy national uh, security advisor for strategy. And then uh, today, Ricky Waddell, um, who I had heard uh, and we reported this morning was likely to be next on the chopping block, is uh, resigning. He's the deputy national security advisor. It's even people like Tom Bossert, who is the homeland security advisor, who answers to the president. Bolton seems to be sort of really kind of going for broke here and just saying, uh, I think, in a statement that um, – I am in charge here, you know, uh, I am the captain now. Uh, and um, that is something that I think is really depressing the National Security Council staff because they were told that wasn't going to happen. And that's that's well, kind of it, it, the it, way things are in the Trump it, White House. Yeah. It's not as if we're in the middle of an international crisis or anything, <laughs> right. anything right. going on. I mean, China, I Russia, mean, Syria. The, the, the Twitter war over Syria seems to be going extremely well. <laughs> right. um, so, so, by the way, Jonathan, since, you know, I'm hoping that you're watching Twitter while I'm not. The president basically seemed to be, you know, suggesting, "Hey, you Russians, watch out for our missiles. They're coming. They're, they're, you know, more fabulous than you could possibly imagine." And then today he's tweeting, "Well, maybe and maybe not." What? What the hell is going on? I'm sorry. Strategic you know, ambiguity, four-dimensional chess, right? I mean, this is <laughs> that's pretty good. You know, I, you know? I, I got to say, this is this is sort of a bugaboo of mine. Um, because this is the people who want to defend Trump at all costs always say, well, you know, this is actually the art of the deal. You keep people guessing as to what your true opinion is. And they are not wrong, right? right? Strategic ambiguity can be enormously helpful, especially when it comes to domestic politics. Uh, and it is it is certainly an asset. But the problem is that it comes with a price. And the price is that in it, when stakes are at the highest level, when it, when things come down to like literally life and death calculations being made at the nation state level, that's when you can't have strategic ambiguity. the The entire balance of geopolitics rests on state level actors being able to anticipate with a reasonable degree of certainty what the response of their opponents and adversaries will be, and. This sort of thing is, you know, penny wise and pound foolish. And with luck, the you know, God, God help us, uh, we should be able to, or we should be able. To, we hope that we'll be able to escape the Trump administration without the bill ever coming due on this. Well, you but know, that's if, relying if, if, on if, luck. If, if we had a book club, I would certainly recommend uh, that we all sit around and read the Guns of August, because the, you know, when when you think about all of the complex international rivalries taking place in Syria and the potential for miscommunication, misunderstanding, overreach is considerable. And I I, I did see an interview, I I think it was with uh, former Ambassador Crocker, who compared what's going on in Syria to 
to that cauldron in in August of 1914, right before World War One. I. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, um, but some sometimes bad things happen without anyone intending them to happen. I mean, nobody you know was planning on going into World War One. No, nobody thought that was coming. Um, but this is one of the reasons why we we generally have not conducted uh, kinetic warfare via Twitter in the past. Well, and there's another thing here, Charlie, which is. Um, the way in which different international actors interpret um, what comes from, say, the president of the United States or um, lower lower level uh, aides, um, you know, there's sort of a difference. I think somebody like Bashar al-Assad or Vladimir Putin, they they um, they pay attention. Well, let me take Putin out of that. But people like strong men like Bashar al-Assad, who have sort of an unsophisticated view of how American politics work, um, probably take something like what Trump says on Twitter at uh, at at face value. People like Vladimir Putin, even and, and, and allies as well, the South Koreans, the Japanese, or you know, go go around the globe. Um, you know, they uh, of course pay very close attention to what you know the deputy secretary of state for for this you know uh, says yeah. uh, publicly. The the fact that there is absolutely no um, uh, congruity between what the president might be tweeting and what these people are saying either publicly or in private channels, um, the, the, the sort of cognitive dissonance that's coming from the United States government uh, is, is it has to be just has to has to leave either our adversaries and our allies just sort of scratching their heads and going, what's going to happen next? Nobody knows. Well, it, it, sound, it sounds like within the White House, people are rattled by this. Yes. So, uh, gentlemen, this morning I found myself, bear with me here, I found myself uh, thinking about herpes. You, you know, we never, we don't hear about it. Remember when herpes was, was a big thing? We never hear about it. But the thing about herpes was that it, it always kept coming back. And, and I thought about that when I was reading the story about Steve Bannon. Uh, that that Steve Bannon is making a return or trying to make a return, sort of like you see the analogy that I'm making here, comparing Steve Bannon to herpes. I see which. Who's you're Valtrex saying. in this scenario? <laughs> well, okay. Is that, is John cool. Kelly Valtrex? I, well, I don't know. I, th- I think we need so to step he, up, step he, away from the metaphor here. This is getting, getting very, uh, uh, yeah. Well, we, 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 could, we could go down this rabbit hole, <laughs> you know, quite a long way here, but uh, to, to extend the, the metaphor. But the latest story <laughs> oh, that gosh, he is coming up way. with that he is coming up with advice to the president to how he can get rid of this or obstruct or or, or shut down the, the the Mueller investigation, and you know su- suggesting that among other things you fire Rod Rosenstein, you start invoking I- I- executive privilege even retroactively. Um, so you know everyone seems to be you know on edge. Uh, about what the president is going to do, and and I, you know, I'm, I'm reading the tweets from Orrin Hatch, and I'm hearing the reassurances from Capitol Hill. But if you watch the people that the president listens to, there are there's a lot of voices telling him, "Do it, do it, pull, pull, pull the trigger." Um, and I know I keep asking this question; it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. But uh, when you start seeing Steve Bannon rolling out ideas like this. It's certainly not inconceivable to me that might be this weekend that the president might reach out and do something like that. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Well, Jonathan, you and I were talking about this beforehand of sort of what what does this mean, right? Because Bannon is 
uh, as we've learned from you know books like Fire and Fury and sort of things, he's, he he inflates his own uh, role in things, or he tries to use um, media. He's actually very savvy when it comes to uh, to media and sort of uh, trying to affect uh, certain thing, you know, certain things or certain changes. Um, uh, and, and it's kind of hard to interpret. Is this something that's really happening, where he's really getting to sort of the inside circle of Trump world uh, and getting this message of you got to be aggressive, you got to fire Rosenstein, you got to go, you got to go uh, a whole new aggressive route on this legal uh, front, or is the Washington Post story uh, indicative of uh, the fact that he's not able to get in and he's trying another way to sort of uh, get his message across uh, to Trump uh, in the way that, that others have either on cable news. And I guess this is, this is Bannon's best way since he's not a, a cable news guy. Um, I don't know. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to see, but I do think that this is a moment and there are people that, um, uh, that I've talked to who are close to the president who feel like this is a different moment and a dangerous moment that um, the president is closer than he has been to um, maybe making a rash decision that w- won't certainly be in his best interest long term, um, and that and that the sort of tr- the Trump presidency kind of hangs in the balance of this particular week and this particular moment of of uh, anger and peak from him. Well, think about other things that are hanging out there. Uh, on Sunday, we're going to be hearing from <laughs> James Comey. The, the book is coming out. And, of course, uh, we always take the hype for what it is worth. But it, it, it sounds like the kind of book and the kind of interview with George Stephanopoulos that uh, is going to, uh, let's say, will, will result in some uh, – rather uh, in, intense executive time at the White House <laughs> on on Monday um, how, how do you how do you see this Comey book playing out uh, Jonathan last including in the way that the Republican National Committee has apparently enlisted in the in the fight to discredit the uh, the former FBI director's book just fake news it's all just I fake know. news Charlie uh, L- lion Jim Comey yeah I don't you know I don't know I you know, Mike just said, you know, we're in this moment of real crisis. We're always in this moment of real crisis. And then we move on to another moment of real crisis. And will this book be worse than The Fire and the Fury? Is Here's the real question. Is Comey a more reliable narrator than uh, Michael Wolff? I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. The bar pretty low. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I guess I'm skeptical that there is anything in the book that's going to really change things. Now, what it could do is it could depending on the coverage he gets, especially in the New York Times, because Trump Trump watches Fox News, but he's obsessed with the New York Times, even though he hates it, because it's his hometown paper, and he views it as the most important paper in the world. Uh, if the New York Times gives fawning coverage to Jim Comey, then maybe Rod Rosenstein gets fired. You know, it could be like... It, but all, in a way, all this is chaos theory. It is the butterfly right. flaps its wings in Central Park, and there is a typhoon in Bangladesh. You know, I mean, this is, this is the way... Governmental policy is being carried out in America right now, and it's a little bit terrifying. Um, well, it is, and I actually tweeted out to read the account of what was going on in the White House that it is a little bit terrifying. Uh, but it would certainly seem possible that Jim Comey could um, could certainly set the president off. I mean, it, it will open up every single wound. Um, you know, go, going going back to uh, the you know the firing of James Comey, bragging about it, uh, then Rod Rosenstein uh, uh, apparently blindsiding the president by appointing him, with, and, the, and the whole story that we all know about. Um, very quickly, um, by the way, did you guys watch? And I'm, I'm now I'm interrupting myself. Did you guys watch the Facebook hearings at all the Zuckerberg hearings in the in the House and the Senate? Uh, did you spend any time on that? Not really. I kind of dipped uh, in and out, but 
but I talk I talked with Christine Rosen about it yesterday, but I I, I guess I, I I want to at least go on record as saying that that was probably one of the worst the Senate uh, the Senate hearing with Mark Zuckerberg was one of the most embarrassing and slightly depressing things that I've seen for some time where having these senators who clearly were absolutely clueless. I mean, somebody compared it to, you know, one of the helplines with, you know, some senior citizen from Boca Raton <laughs> calling up and trying to figure out how to turn their computer on. I mean, it had Sir, that Sir, is it that. plugged into the wall? Yes, Could you exactly. check to see if it's plugged into the wall, please, sir? I'll hold. <laughs> yes. Uh, Senator, we are, we are actually not affiliated with um, America Online. Um, <laughs> just, I mean, uh, yeah, se- se- Senator, was, I don't know how to make your grandson accept your friend request. You know, that's... It, exactly. It, it did feel that way. Now, the House did a much better job. Uh, okay, before we're done, uh, Mike Pompeo was, uh, was testifying this morning. My sense, uh, sitting there uh, and, and a cable hit that uh, I basically sat through the entire thing <laughs> and not, uh, not going on. But it, it seemed like he was doing um, he was doing relatively well. Uh, are you picking up any signals at all that uh, that that uh, that his nomination is going to encounter significant opposition? Um, I think that there's a, a sense that um, uh, the the uh, extended um, that, that what was extended by Democrats to uh, Pompeo. Uh, in his CIA uh, director uh, 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 hearing um, that he could be in a little danger here because, of course, now we're deep into the Trump administration and Democrats are concerned and uh, it may not be a great thing uh, for a Democrat at this point to even extend an olive branch to anybody nominated by Trump. On the other hand, uh, if you listen to some of the questions that the Democrats on this committee were asking, they seem to be sort of pressuring or putting uh, to him uh, the question, are you going to be a check on Trump? And so right. he, he's, uh, Pompeo's a pro, um, he knows what he's doing, um, he's he's somebody who um, served in Congress, obviously, uh, and uh, I think that um, he's he seems to have done a good job of at least projecting that. Um, it may not be he's certainly not somebody who is going to be um, uh, espousing uh, what the Democrats on the committee would like right. for a Secretary of State to do, but perhaps it seems that he's at least convinced them that um, that he's he he may be the best that they can get. Um, and and I will say the other little bit of news. News that seems to have come out, and Jen Liffitz, our reporter uh, who's covering this, uh, said it seems to be the big buzz in the room is that uh, uh, Pompeo did confirm that he was interviewed by yep. Bob Mueller, the special counsel, and that seems to be um, of, of great interest to to everybody. He, he was also very careful not to answer any questions about uh, the tweets about Mueller or about the, the investigation. I guess the other argument would be that you can't really make a case that anyone would be better off having nobody home and in charge at the State Department, uh, given what's going on in the world right now. No, yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, and, and also, um, you know, for, for whatever whatever they have against uh, against Pompeo, um, and there does seem to be the, the, the focus on the Iran deal, and Pompeo is a big critic of the Iran deal. Um, a lot of Democrats, uh, obviously, are very concerned about, about maintaining that. Um, uh, I, I think that would be the other the other element here that could that could hurt him, which is um, it's one thing if he's the CIA director. It's another thing if he's going to be um, sort of deeply involved in unraveling the Iran deal. Um, of course, as uh, 
as an opponent to that, I, I'm uh, to the Iran deal. I, I don't have really a, a problem with that, but um, that is certainly something I think that hurts him, even with some of the more centrist uh, Democrats on the committee. Somebody like Ben Cardin, um, who uh, who was sort of a soft opponent to uh, the Iran deal, but uh, but has sort of moved into the camp that if Trump sort of tears it up wantonly, um, that that mm-hmm. that's worse. Well, we don't know whether or not there's going to be an attack on Syria in the next couple of days. And, of course, we'll talk about that if it happens. I'm, I'm almost feeling a little bit nostalgic for the times when we could just talk about payoffs to porn stars. That seems like a kinder <laughs> and gentler era already. I think uh, we'll look back on this nostalgically. Like, remember when things were easy and we could just talk about Stormy Daniels. But you know what? I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity because that's not going away. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. And we will do this again.